We all have many needs. There's many needs. If we went around this room, we could find uh, all kinds of them, and they'd be different. Uh, some would be health-related. We have health concerns, health issues, uh, financial concerns, financial needs, relational needs, perhaps with friends or, or family or co-workers or all of the above, work needs, perhaps, and the list could go on. As I said, we could go around this room and there'd be as many needs as, and more as there are people. But there's one need that we all share in common that towers, that towers above them all. And this is, of course, our need for the forgiveness of sins. It's what we've been singing about and giving God praise for already this afternoon. According to scriptures, according to the scriptures, sin is the great problem in our world. And while our world around us searches for answers as to why there is all of the conflict and problems that we see in the world that we're reminded of daily, ultimately, it comes down to sin in the human heart. It began with Adam, and it has been passed to all who have come since him, every human being. It takes the form of actions. It's things we do. We commit sins in our actions. But it's much more than that as well. It includes our thoughts, the things we think. We can sin in our thoughts. We sin in our desires. It's a problem with our very nature, with the nature of human beings, who we are as human beings, as part of the fall. God created that which was good, but because of the fall, human nature is now corrupted. And this is something we all share. And so the Bible, again, describes this, this, this concept of sin being in our nature, often uses the phrase the heart, that sin is, is in our heart, it's within us. So in Genesis 8.21, God talked about how uh, it says there that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, that the intent of the heart is evil. Jesus said, uh, Mark 7, that it's, that which comes out of a person that defiles him. So that which comes out of the human heart. So sins like, he goes on to list some, adultery, greed, um, sensuality, pride, evil thoughts, deceit, coveting. These things spring up out of our hearts. It comes from our nature. We are sinful beings. And as a result of this coming out of us and this sinful nature, we are defiled, Jesus says. And of course, the greatest problem we have is that God is holy. So the Bible declares God is light, in Him there is no darkness. This sin, uh, God has nothing to do with it. It's not part of who He is. He is holy good. He is uh, perfect, set apart from everything else. He's not like us. He's much greater than us. And He's uh, good, and He's a just judge. And we looked at this last week. Uh, we looked at how the Lord Jesus will return and when he comes, he will bring with him judgment. He's coming back, 2 Thessalonians says, in flaming fire to bring about judgment. And so this problem is, is very real for us, this problem of our sin. And we need forgiveness. We need this sin dealt with. We need it to be taken away. We need a covering. We need righteousness. And we lack these things. 
And so today, we're going to look at the greatest blessing in the world. The greatest possible blessing in the world, the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness is our greatest need, and so to receive forgiveness is our greatest blessing. I think that flows, that follows, it makes sense. And of course, as Christians, we're, we're never above our need for grace. We never reach perfection uh, this side of, of death, this side of Christ's return. We never reach perfection. We are always in need of grace. We are always sinning in various ways at times, and, we, and we, we need to ask for forgiveness. So this blessing is never something we move past or we move beyond. We're always in need of it. It's always a blessing. Whether it's the first day we repent and find forgiveness or whether we did that years ago, um, this is a great blessing, the greatest possible one in the world. And so hopefully today, and, and, and we've sung about it already, but hopefully today as we look at this blessing again and the forgiveness of sins, that as we sang, sweet comfort will fill our hearts again. That we, Jesus will keep us near the cross as we come and, and, and look at our need for forgiveness and the forgiveness that the Lord offers as we behold the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, just a little disclaimer, we are, we've been working through 2 Thessalonians, as you know, um, but today we're, we're taking a break for that, for, for a week, just for today, and um, we're going to look at Psalm 32. And so the reason we're, we're doing this, um, just honestly, I need more time to figure out 2 Thessalonians 2. That's just disclosure uh, to you. Um, if, uh, if, if, it's, if the time up here teaching from 2 Thessalonians 2 is going to be profitable, I think we would all benefit from just giving it another week uh, to figure it out. So you can pray that I can do that and bring back something that's edifying and uh, uplifting. And that's, again, uh, you know, we, we want to understand the Word of God and, and understand it rightly. And so we don't want to force something that, uh, that's just not going to be clear or helpful. I've heard it said that if things are a mist in the pulpit for the person preaching, then it's going to be a fog for everybody else. So in the purpose of not laying out a thick cloud of confusion uh, today, we're just going to put that on hold for a week, and we're going to go to Psalm 32. So I invite you to turn there. It was read for us at the start of the service. But we are just going to work our way through that and look at this greatest blessing, the blessing of forgiveness. So let's read the first two verses. It says, a masculine of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So here David lays out the theme of the psalm, that word a masculine of David. Uh, it's likely a musical term or a liturgical word. We don't really know what it is, um, but this is written by David. And he lays out the theme in these verses, the, the blessedness of being forgiven, of having sins removed. That's what this whole psalm is about. The word blessed uh, has the, the connotation of, of uh, happiness, favor, privilege, all of that sort of rolled together into it. This blessing is an objective truth, an objective reality that uh, if one is forgiven, whether uh, they're feeling it in the moment or not, 
um, it's, it's, this blessing is true. They are blessed, even if they're having a terrible day. If their sins are forgiven, they are blessed. So it's an objective truth, but it's also one that results in a subjective experience of joy as well. And we'll see that as we get to the end of the, end of the uh, chapter, that, that this objective reality of being forgiven uh, ought to and should lead us to joy and gladness and worship. And so this psalm just drips in relief and joy that comes from being forgiven. So David in these first two verses uses three words for sin here. He uses the word transgression, then he says sin, and then he says iniquity. These three words. This is not about determining um, specific sins so much as David is just expressing uh, compre- the comprehensiveness of the sins that have been forgiven. All types of sin, all manner of sin has been forgiven. These terms cover sin that would be unintentional. Sometimes we don't set out to sin. It just it happens and we sin. These, these would also cover intentional sins. Sometimes we um, are more intentional about it. We intentionally do it. Um, and those are different, but they're still sinful. Sometimes we sin directly at God, against God. Sometimes we sin more indirectly by sinning uh, against a neighbor, against somebody else. It's still sin against God, but it's, it's, it's slightly different. But Paul or David's point here, I'll probably say that a lot today, Paul, because we've been in Thessalonians, but it's David. I mean David. Um, uh, David's point here is that all these sins are forgiven. And blessed is that man, that woman, that person, whose sins are forgiven. And the, the use of these three words are significant because, I think because, they are found in uh, a couple of places in the Old Testament that are really um, significant passages, important passages in the Old Testament. And David would have known it well. Those would have been his scriptures. Uh, the, the first five books of Moses that we've been working through on Wednesday nights, those, those would have been... Um, the, the kings were supposed to memorize it. They were supposed to know it well, write out a copy of it so they had it ingrained in them. Uh, so David would be very familiar with this. Um, in Exodus 34, 5 to 7, the Lord reveals himself to Moses and explains his name. And we looked at this a couple weeks ago when we did Exodus on Wednesday night, if you were there. But if not, Exodus 34, 5 to 7, this is what it says. The Lord descended in the cloud... And stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. So this is now God himself telling us who he is. This is his name. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Those same three words. So God has revealed himself as a God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And David here is saying, blessed is the man who has had his sin, transgression, and iniquity forgiven. So I think he's, he's, he's got Exodus 34 in mind. And again, it was significant in Exodus. It's, it's one of the... Um, uh, John 3.16 type passages in the Old Testament. This is a really important thing where God's revealing a very, uh, who he is, a key part of his character to us and who he is. 
And, and, and in that time, in Exodus 34, it's right after the golden calf incident where Israel has miserably failed before they've really even started out in this covenant with the Lord. They've miserably failed. They're worshiping false gods. God is right to just wipe them out and start over. They've sinned against him. It would be just for him to do that. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He shows grace. He shows steadfast love to them. He forgives them. Likewise, this, is, this shows up again in another place, Leviticus 16, which is the Day of Atonement. So the very center of the first five books of the Bible. It's a very important, again, another important part of, um, I mean, it's all important, but a highlight, a mountaintop, if you will, of the Old Testament. This Day of Atonement is described in Leviticus 16. It was a day when the high priest would go into the tabernacle, later the temple. He'd go into the most holy place. He'd go there once a year. He would uh, offer uh, sacrifices and, and make atonement for the people of Israel. And so in Leviticus 16.21, the high priests were told was to confess, quote, all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. So again, you have those three words being used to describe the sin that is being dealt with on the Day of Atonement. And this was the only way for God to dwell with a holy people was for uh, sacrifices to be offered for their sins. And, and that is clear uh, throughout Exodus and Leviticus. So I think David, is, who's well-versed in the Old Testament, has these scriptures in mind as he declares for us in Psalm 32, Blessed is the one who has been forgiven of these sins, transgressions, and iniquities. He also then goes on to use three words to describe the removal of sin. Again, pointing, I think, to the comprehensiveness of this removal. It's gone. So he says, uh, forgiven, the first word, whose transgression is forgiven, which means to lift or to carry away. So it pictures God uh, taking away sin, carrying away guilt. He uses the word covered, which refers to the, uh, the, the gracious act of atonement in which God provides a covering for sin to remove the barrier between God and man through the death of a sacrifice. And then he says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And this refers to God's attitude towards a person who has now been justified in his sight, who's now been made right before God. Their sin for that person is not, no longer counted against them. It's no longer credited to them. It's no longer on their account. It's not counted against them. And so this is forgiveness in completion, total forgiveness. This is the blessing he's describing. All sins, all manner of sins, gone. It's a total forgiveness that David's describing. And so one question is, on what grounds can God forgive sins? Okay, if he is just, he cannot simply uh, sweep those things under the carpet. Right? He, can't, he can't do that any more than a, a judge in our world can just sweep someone's crimes under the, the, the rug. If they did that, we would all very rightly be upset if we, oh, it's not a big deal, I'll just let you go. That, that would not be just. That would be unjust. So on what grounds can God forgive and cover our sins? Well, it can only be done on the basis that the punishment for our sins be paid by a substitute, if not us. If he's going to forgive, there still needs to be a punishment for our sins. 
In David's day, this is why they offered uh, sacrifices, animal sacrifices, in, in the tabernacle to make atonement for their sins. As we read uh, Leviticus 16 already, uh, the sin and the guilt of the people was symbolically transferred to the animal. They lay hands on the head, uh, symbolically transferred to the animal. The animals would be killed and slaughtered in their place as a substitute. However, as we keep reading through Scripture, we, we understand and we learn that animals can only provide a temporary covering. They cannot actually take away the sin of a human being. Uh, an animal can't quite substitute in and take sins away permanently from a person. So he, the author of Hebrews tells us the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away uh, human sin. And so these sacrifices that they did repeatedly, day after day, year after year, in the, in the uh, temple and in the tabernacle, they pointed to our need for a greater sacrifice to come, namely the Son of God himself, Jesus Christ. And so he came, and the New Testament authors make clear he was uh, a lamb without blemish. John, when he came, called him he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this understanding that he is uh, the, the Passover Lamb. He is the sacrifice that we need. Uh, his, his sacrifice uh, was much, much greater than any of the animal sacrifices because he's the Son of God who is truly God and truly man, dies on the cross, sheds his own blood for sinners, and it actually has the effect of saving everybody who repents and trusts in him. It's a once-for-all thing, Hebrews says, that tells us no more sacrifices need to be offered. The, the reason we no longer come and slaughter animals here is because we don't need to, because those pointed to a better sacrifice that was to come, and that was Jesus Christ, and he has come, and now we look back and we give thanks to God for Christ. And so his precious blood brings atonement for his people in a way the Old Testament sacrifices never could have. He died to turn back God's wrath for all who would trust in him. And of course, he not only died, he rose again from the dead. He is at the Father's right hand now, making intercession for his people. And so it's on the basis of Christ and his death and his resurrection alone that people can be graciously forgiven by God. It is him we need. And even we, we learn in the New Testament that David himself and all the Old Testament believers, their sin was temporarily covered over as they walked in faith and offered these sacrifices in faith, but even their sin was paid for by Christ. So even David's own sin ultimately would be paid for by Christ. This is how God was able to and is able to now forgive sins. And so David here is expressing the great blessing that comes to the one who has received this, who though have comprehensively and, and who are utterly and totally sinful, those who've nevertheless received forgiveness. And he adds this at the end of verse 2, uh, in, in blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. We'll see this more in a moment. But here he shows us that forgiveness is for those who are not hiding anything, who are not deceived about this. So the man who does not have uh, deceit in his spirit, 
here refers to the one who knows they are sinful and who is openly and honestly confessing it before the Lord. They're not deceived by this. There's no deceit about it. This person is one who who knows they're sinful and have confessed this before the Lord. They're not hiding it. They're not um, pretending they're okay. They acknowledge it. They confess it. And I think this also shows us there's a, a downward spiral that sin leads to in which we sin and we uh, end up deceiving ourselves into thinking that we're fine. This is not a big deal. This is fine. No problem. But the forgiven one is not such a person. They're one who knows their great need for forgiveness and grace. So, friends, there's no greater blessing that you could possibly receive than this. There's lots of great things, there's lots of great blessings, but there's nothing greater than this we could possibly receive. To have your sin and your guilt before a holy God carried away, taken away, forgiven, more than that, paid for by Christ. To have your sins no longer counted against you in the eyes of God Almighty, to whom you will give an account. What other blessing possibly compares? Riches? It's good to have, you know, to be provided for and have the finances you need to live and survive. That's great. That's a blessing. But even the Bible tells us riches will not profit on the day of wrath. In the end, we will die. We will stand before God. And then what becomes of our riches? It's of no help. Family? Again, it's a great blessing. But even they cannot get you your sins forgiven. And this is why Jesus says things like how our, if we do not hate our father and mother, we are not worthy to be his disciple. Meaning that our love for the Lord ought to, comparatively to how we love our own family members, it should look like hate compared to how much we love the Lord Jesus. That even The Bible tells us, Jesus also tells us and warns us that family members will turn on family members too. And so Jesus is to come first because ultimately he's the one we need. There's no other blessing greater than this and there's no greater need that we have. And so how do we receive this? How do we get, receive this blessing of forgiveness? David continues, And will show us that ultimately it's received through honest confession and repentance. Looking to the Lord and confessing our sin and repenting of it. So he continues by recounting his experience, verses 3 to 4. He says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So David is, is saying there was a time when he kept silent about his sin, he, where he concealed his sin. We don't know what sin he's referring to. It's possible this is also talking about his uh, adultery that he committed with Bathsheba and then how he tried to cover that up, and that even included a conspiracy that had a man killed. That's significant. That could very well be what it is. I don't know for sure. That would fit the description. But whatever the specific sin was that he committed, 
We know how it affected him inwardly as he kept it inside, as he covered up his sin. He says, my bones wasted away. This is a picture of rottenness in, the, in your bones inside. Decay. It's poetically describing the guilt that eats one away inside, like rottenness, like decay in the bones. You've perhaps felt this before. I remember as a kid, I was no more than nine, stealing a hockey card. My brother made me do it. Well, he talked me into it. But it's funny now, and he and I will laugh about it, but, at, but it's not really funny. At the time, I took it and I ran. I ran home and I felt sick because I knew this was all wrong. I should not have done this. I should not have taken it. And it, it tore me up inside until finally we went back and apologized and gave it back and made it right. But there, I, I don't remember much about the situation, but I do remember that awful feeling, uh, even as a child, knowing that, that I had done something terribly wrong. I had sinned greatly. He says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. David recognized that this inner rottenness that he felt was the heavy hand of God upon him as discipline for his sin. So David is relating for us the experience of one who is trusting in the Lord, but who nevertheless commits sin. And the Lord tells us that he disciplines those he loves. And what a blessing this is to receive God's heavy hand of discipline for our sin. The Bible makes it clear that there are times when God simply gives people over to their sin. He just lets them go their way and have their sin. And that's a judgment on them. And they become deluded and self-deceived. In fact, when we get to 2 Thessalonians 2 next week, we'll see it talks about God sending a strong delusion as a judgment. And so people, this happens. That there are people headed for judgment thinking that all is well. And that's a terrifying thought. And so what a tremendous blessing to have the Lord's heavy hand upon you when you sin, to feel that rottenness in your bones, to know you've done what is wrong, and to desire to have it made right. That's a tremendous, uh, tremendous blessing. This is where the discipline of the Lord is a fatherly discipline for his children when they sin, to, to help them see it, to draw them back in, to have them turn back. And so the effect of this heavy hand, he says, David says, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So more literally, that it says his life juices were turned into the drought of summer. So the picture of keeping silent when we sin is one of inner decay and loss of all strength due to baking under summer sun. This is the picture that David wants us to see about sitting on our sin and keeping it inside. But David continues. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. 
And so finally, at last, David feels this rottenness. His strength is dried up. He's weary from keeping silent about his sin. And finally, he acknowledges his sin to the Lord, confessing it honestly. The sin that he knew intimately, he confesses to the Lord. He quit covering it, he says here. I did not cover my iniquity. This is a contrast to verse 1 where it's a blessing to have the Lord cover our sins. If the Lord covers our sins, that's a blessing. But it's wrong for us to try to cover or conceal our sins. We are to acknowledge them, as David did, and bring them to God and ask Him to cover them, to deal with them. He continues, he says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And I forgave the and, and he forgave the iniquity of my sin. So he decides, I will confess these sins, and he forgave the iniquity of my sin. Again, David's repeated these three words for sin in these sentences. It's like saying uh, he's, he's, he repents of, of every element of his sinfulness. He even says, God forgave the iniquity of my sin. It's like he forgave the sinfulness of my sin, the the guilt, the horribleness of my sin. It's clear David understands the depths of his depravity here, the depths of his sinfulness, and he's not hiding it. And this is a wonderful picture of biblical confession and repentance, hiding nothing. We are not to conceal our sin and keep silent, but are to bring it to the Lord, bring it to the light. Forgiveness of sins comes through acknowledging our sin before God, owning it as being sin, confessing it and repenting of it. To acknowledge it before God, it's agreeing that it's utterly sinful, that our sin is is utterly wrong before God. Biblical confession of sin is not accompanied by, well, the attitude of, yeah, nobody's perfect. Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah, you got me. I've sinned. Yeah. Nobody's perfect, though. Okay, that's, not a, that's not a saving confession of sin. Right? It involves understanding that this really is a horrible wrong before the Lord. So it's not, yeah, well, nobody's perfect. It's also not just simply being sorry for being caught, for getting caught, for consequences. That's a worldly sorrow. So it's not just being sorry that there's consequences. It's not your typical confession you hear when someone important does something wrong and says, well, I'm sorry if that offended you. That's not it. (laughs) It's understanding that this was actually wrong. This was actually sinful before God. As Christians, as those of us who've, who've done this, who have come before the Lord, have come to the light and have, have asked for forgiveness and have received forgiveness, those of us who agree and understand that we are sinful and in need of saving, we are sometimes still hesitant to bring our recent sins to the light and confess them before the Lord for various reasons. 
Sometimes we perhaps, in a weird way, um, wallow in our guilt and think that that is perhaps godly. Um, to just, I'm just going to wallow in this for a while and feel sorry and feel bad. Perhaps we think it will increase our acceptance to God if we really, 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 really feel it and if we sit on this sin for quite a while until we feel it more. Perhaps we think that'll make us more acceptable to God. Or perhaps, I think this is common, we, we, we know better. We know better and we sinned anyway. And we feel ashamed of it. And it's difficult to think of coming before the Lord yet again to confess our sin. And we feel ridiculous and we feel embarrassed and we feel shame for it. Or perhaps we just don't want anyone to know we're sinful because we want to appear mature in Christ. We think that we, 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 um, we want to look perhaps a certain way, a certain um, respectability that we want to keep, and so we, we, we don't really want to acknowledge our sin and our guilt. But friends, let's not fall into this trap. Consider the words of 1 John 1 verse 5 and following. John says, This is the message we have heard from him, Jesus, and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So if we, we claim, oh yeah, we believe, but then we just walk contentedly in sin and don't repent about it and we aren't upset about it at all, we lie and do not practice the truth. But... If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, this idea of light, we're not hiding anything. The light is exposing our sinfulness. We're acknowledging it before him. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So if we are just walking in sin and we love it, the Bible says um, right here, uh, you don't practice the truth. You don't, you don't really believe the Lord if you just walk in sin. But it also says if we claim we don't have sin, well, I don't have anything to repent of, then we deceive ourselves and likewise the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you feel the heavy hand of God on you for your sins, confess to him. Acknowledge your sin. Bring them into the light and ask for forgiveness. Don't wallow in your guilt. Bring them to Christ. Confess them to Him. If you have never done that, never repented, and yet you feel the weight of your sin, confess those to the Lord. And turn from those and trust in Christ and be forgiven.
David goes on to show us that now is the time for confession and repentance. So let's read verses 6 and 7. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Here David issues a call for his readers to offer prayer to God while he may be found. Again, the Bible teaches us that all whom God saves, who he redeems and gives his spirit to, all that he saves, he will keep to the end. However, we are also told to not be presumptuous about this. We're never told, because God saves and keeps his people to the end, therefore check out. We're never ever told that. In fact, we're told the opposite. We're told to not be presumptuous about this. We're told to press on to the end. And so we should never have the attitude of, well, maybe you know, one day I'll repent. You know, maybe one day I'll, I'll work on that, that issue, that sin. There's an urgency here to his words. Being presumptuous about our sins and God's grace is not a sign of being born again. If we're presuming upon God's kindness, well, I'll sin and whatever, he'll, he'll forgive me. Rather, he says, the godly are to call out to him now while he may be found, while there's opportunity, while there's breath in your lungs. Repent. Call out to him. And he says, surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. So for those who've been forgiven, the flood waters of God's judgment will not reach you. Rather, David says, you are a hiding place for me. He says, you preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Amazingly, the God who had his hand heavy upon David, making him feel the weight of his sin, is the same God who has now become a hiding place for David, a refuge for him against God's own wrath. It continues, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Here in verse 8, the word you is singular. He says, I will instruct you, meaning it's referring to one person. So uh, in English, we just say you, and it could be singular to one person, or it could be to a group. Um, in Hebrew, it's, it's more explicit. So it's singular here. It's talking to one person. So it seems strange uh, because if, if David's writing for, to the, for the people of Israel, um, then, then why would he turn to singular here and, and be speaking to one person? Um, so it's, it's possible that perhaps David is, is, is addressing a, a son. Um, or more likely, I think more likely, David is quoting the Lord, that he's quoting the Lord's commitment to David in verses 8 and 9. That it's the Lord who is instructing David in the way he should go. It's the Lord keeping his eye on David. And this would be um, sort of complementary, I guess, to the fact that the Lord is the one who had his hand, his hand of discipline heavy on David. 
And this would be it. The Lord is keeping his eye on him, counseling him, teaching him the way he should go, um, keeping him, keeping his eye on him. And so either way, this is a call to not be stubborn like a mule or a horse that needs something in its mouth in order to control it. So the Lord used a heavy hand on David to bring him to the point of confession. He was concealing his sin. The Lord placed a heavy hand of discipline on him in order to bring him to repentance because David was a mule. He was being stubborn in this. And the Lord does this with his people. And it's a part of him being faithful to his people. He uses a heavy hand to steer us when we are stubborn, but also calls us here, don't be stubborn. Walk in faithfulness. And so for Christians, if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and have received the Spirit of God within you, your heart has been changed, you have new desires, you desire to obey Him, let us heed this call to submission and to confession. Let us make it our aim to not return to the mire of our sin. And when we do, let us call out to God while He may be found and repent of our sin once again. Today is the day to repent. And if you've never found forgiveness again, now is the time, while the Lord may be found, now is the time to repent and trust in Him for forgiveness. Finally, uh, David calls us to live in the joy that comes with being forgiven. Verses 10 and 11, he says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So David offers here a summary of this chapter in verse 10. There's a contrast here between the wicked who do not come to the Lord and the one who's trusting in the Lord. And he says, many are the sorrows of the wicked. Generally speaking, the more wicked you are, the more reason you have to be looking over your shoulder as you go through your life. Sorrow is multiplied. Moreover, when the wicked person, when everything starts to crumble around that person, there's nobody to save. There's nobody to help. Likewise, for, those, for, for anyone who persists in rebellion against God, everything can become a reason for sorrow. If you reject the Lord, you reject God, who is sovereign over all, then finances, the unknown of finances, the unknown of tomorrow in anything, job security, every struggle is multiplied exponentially. All sorrow is increased because there are zero guarantees in this life or the next. In fact, this life is all there is. And so what a miserable situation. The secular worldview around us is void, void of hope and meaning. If people are honest, they, people will try to make things up. But if we come from nothing, and there is no Lord, and there's no one to whom we return to, no one to whom we give an account, 
No one who created us and put us here. There is no such thing as justice. There's no such thing as good. There's no such thing as wrong. Everything is totally meaningless. That is the consistent conclusion of the secular worldview, which is all around us. And so, sorrow abounds because this is a hopeless world. And of course, we know, we, we, we know that a lot of wicked people seem to be doing just fine. Right? And the Bible acknowledges this too in various places, that there are wicked people who seem to have it all. Life seems good. They don't feel particularly sorrowful. They've got more money than they know what to do with. They have power. But if we look at the end, if we, again, expand our timeline, we talked about last week, and we consider the fact that Christ will return in flaming fire, their sorrows will be many and increased. So many are the sorrows of the wicked, but... David says, steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Being forgiven means that the Lord has placed his love upon you. In fact, he has surrounded you with his love. And so, while troubles most certainly come to Christians, trials, persecutions, we are to expect these things. We are not immune to it. We still suffer and face hardship. We expect it. But the major difference is that we know that our sins are forgiven and the Lord has placed His love around us. And so whatever comes, whatever happens, we know that we are safe in the arms of the Lord. And eternally so. And if our sins are forgiven then that really does put our earthly troubles into perspective. And if the steadfast love of the Lord surrounds us, we need not worry about what tomorrow brings. We are in the loving hands of our loving Heavenly Father. And so David says, he concludes in verse 11, Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And so here's this call to gladness, to rejoicing. If you trust in the Lord, having received his forgiveness, then the appropriate response is joy. The appropriate response is gladness, happiness. Yes, Things are difficult and trials come, but I'm better than I deserve because my sins have been forgiven. And so the call for, is for the righteous, he says, or the upright in heart to be glad. This is clearly not referring to those who are morally perfect or who have attained a righteousness that is beyond fail, an absolute righteousness. Uh, that would undermine his entire psalm. That's not what he's saying. This is a, a, a term referring to those who are trusting in the Lord. In the New Testament, we often see the word saints being called saints. It's a similar idea. So it's a term to those who are trusting in the Lord, who are openly confessing their sins, in whose heart there is no deceit, those who have received forgiveness and are seeking to walk in obedience to God. 
And so if you are trusting in Christ Jesus, your greatest need has been taken care of. Your greatest possible need has been dealt with. And yet, it can be difficult to live in this place of gladness and joy. And so as best we can, we need to try to uh, sink our roots down deep into this soil, into this truth. And this is one of the reasons why we gather every week and why we gather in the middle of the week and why we should be phoning each other and looking after each other and encouraging each other because so easily we lose sight of this. Other things come across our eyes and distract us and take us away from the glorious reality of the Lord Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins and His love displayed for us through that. And we lose sight and we become worried and we become filled with sorrow and concern and it overwhelms us sometimes. We lose sight of this. And so we, one of the reasons we gather to remind ourselves, one of the reasons why for many of you nothing I've said is new and yet it's worthy of our time to set these things before our eyes and to remember Christ Jesus crucified for sinners and to remember that in Him we are forgiven and given the righteousness of God. We need reminder of this, to have our joy stirred up and to together send our roots down deep into this soil, this truth. And so... What worries you? What concerns you? What fills your heart with sorrow? Look to Christ. Remember the Lamb slain for sinners. Look to the one who came to seek and save the lost. Look to the one who took on sin though he knew no sin, so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. Look to the one who has overcome death, who holds the keys to the death in Hades. Look to the one who is returning one day to set all of this right and to gather his elect, his children, his people to himself, to give us new bodies, to live with him forever in the new heavens and new earth. Set your eyes to him. Remember, you are right with him and that will help us have joy, gladness, and keep fighting for that. The lure of sin is still strong. This doesn't, it's not just automatic. But fight for this joy. Fight to keep Christ before your eyes. Look to Christ in His death to see the love of God for you. Be glad. Rejoice in this. And if you haven't believed in Christ, joy and gladness is a wonderful fruit of salvation. It's not a joy that comes from having everything we ever wanted. It's not a joy that comes from having everything just all cleaned up and no problems in this life. Rather, it's a fruit that comes from knowing your sins are forgiven and whatever trials you face, you know that before God you stand right, you stand forgiven you stand justified and nobody in no situation can snatch that from you the love of the lord surrounds those who trust in him our greatest problem is sin the greatest blessing is forgiveness of sin to be right with god and so let us come to him 
while he may be found in deep contrition, repenting of our sin. And then let us get on the other side of that as well to the gladness and the joy that is found in having our sins forgiven. And let's camp out there in the joy of being surrounded by God's steadfast love and faithfulness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. We give you praise. God, we all deserve your judgment. And yet you have made a way for people to be reconciled to you, and we give you praise and thanks. And I just ask that you would help us to cling to this truth, to cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to cling to him, to marvel at the cost, as we sang earlier. And I pray that whatever each person here is facing, the difficulty, the trials they're facing, that they would find joy and contentment knowing that their sins are forgiven. And I pray that this truth would work sanctification in our hearts, that we would, that we would long to put away sin, that we would desire to not be like a mule and stubbornly returning to sin or stubbornly being shy about confessing to you. May we come openly and honestly before you. And may we enjoy the light, knowing we have nothing to hide, knowing that Jesus Christ, in Him, all our transgressions, sin, and iniquity have been paid for. God, work this joy in our hearts. Help us to remember these truths and to encourage one another in these truths. Even as we continue this day, even as we go about our week, Lord, remind us of these things. And uh, we just pray, God, that people in this city would that we would take this message to them, that, that others would hear and believe and receive this wonderful truth, that they would receive forgiveness of sins. So we pray you would be doing this work and drawing many to yourselves for your own namesake. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.